Chapter 7, page 60. Six o'clock on the nose. Griffin hissed excitedly, making a note on his pad. The two boys were hidden inside a large globe cedar directly across 9th Street from Palomino's Emporium. Come on, Griffin. How about a little wiggle room? Ben complained. I've got a prickly branch up my armpit. They watched as Dufferin got into a car parked at the curb. Griffin wrote down the make and model as the assistant manager drove away. The two boys emerged from the bush, shaking and stretching cramped limbs. What do you think about the fence, Griffin mused. I think it's a fence around a locked store with a burglar alarm, Ben confirmed. Piece of cake, if you're made of ectoplasm and can walk through walls. Just because we haven't figured it out yet doesn't mean it can't be done, Griffin replied. If you want it bad enough, it'll come to you. They crossed the street and stood before the heavy chain that held the gate shut. Can we climb it? Experimentally, Griffin jammed a toe in the mesh and hoisted himself up. Luther came out of nowhere. The big Doberman launched itself through the air and slammed into the fence opposite Griffin. The shocked boy lost his grip and tumbled into the arms of a terrified Ben. The two of them landed flat on their backs on the sidewalk. The monster clung to the mesh by its powerful teeth, snarling and growling. Griffin hauled Ben upright, and they scrambled back across Ninth Street to the cover of their bush. Griffin pulled out his notebook and wrote Animal Control in large letters across the page. Control that guy? Ben squeaked. I'd settle for not being his lunch. Griffin looked thoughtful. Who knows more about animals than anybody else in town? Chapter 8, page 63. Savannah Drysdale was talking to a rabbit. She whispered softly into a floppy ear as she held the animal on her lap, rocking slowly on her frilly purple quilt. Griffin and Ben could not make out what she was saying, but it was obvious that the creature was totally calm in her arms. Mrs. Drysdale cleared her throat. <clears throat> Savannah! Louder. Savannah, your friends are here. She disappeared into the hall. Savannah regarded them dubiously, but she set the rabbit down. It hopped over to an elaborate cage in the corner where it shared a water-feeding tube with a pair of hamsters. I guess you have a lot of pets, Griffin observed. Not pets, Savannah replied pointedly. In this house, we're all equal partners. My mom and dad, me, my brother, our dog, two cats, four rabbits, seven hamsters, three turtles, parakeet, and albino chameleon. If an albino, how does it change color, asked Ben. He has to stay white. It's a disability. And his name is Lorenzo, not it. Griffin cleared his throat carefully. That's really cool that you can talk to rabbits. Does it work with other animals that way? We don't talk about the weather, if that's what you mean. Animals are sensitive to the tone of your voice, the vibe you put out. They know who to trust and who not to trust. They may not be able to understand your words, but they know they're safe with you. It's not a conversation, but you're definitely communicating. Why? We need you to talk to a dog, Ben blurted. Savannah's eyes narrowed. What dog? Remember what you said about how all animals are innocent inside, Griffin reminded her. 
Well, there's this guard dog on Ninth Street, a Doberman. He's pretty much pure T-Rex. We're talking vicious, nasty, mean. Stop right there, Savannah interrupted. A guard dog is only mean because that's how he was trained. If you take a newborn puppy and raise it so that the one behavior that ever gets rewarded is aggressive, you're going to wind up with a pretty rough adult dog. That's Luther, all right, put in Ben. But that doesn't make it the dog's fault, Savannah continued sharply. And it doesn't mean that a little puppy isn't trapped in there somewhere, waiting for a chance to come out. What if the good dog's been trapped so long that it's gone forever, Griffin wondered, laying it on thick to get to Savannah. Then you're just left with 100% bad dog. That's so sad. There's no such thing as 100% bad dog, said Savannah with uncertainty. You take me to this Doberman. 6.10 p.m. As Tom Dufferin drove away from Palomino's Emporium, Griffin and Ben emerged from an alley, escorting Savannah to her meeting with Luther. He's spectacular, she whispered at her first sight of the Doberman, and then choked back a sniffle of emotion. Sorry, she said, catching herself. But what kind of a heartless person imprisons an elegant and noble animal behind a fence? The kind who doesn't want his elegant and noble animal eating any pedestrians, Ben suggested dryly. He's kidding, Griffin put in quickly. The guy whose store this is, he runs a simple comic shop like a military base. You should see the inside. Everything's locked away and alarm wired. Griffin's outrage was genuine. Of all the places in town to break into, Palomino's Emporium had to be the most treacherous. Savannah nodded grimly. To him, this beautiful dog is just another keep-out sign. We'll see about that. Luther, sweetie, she called in a loving tone. Come and say hello. I'm a friend. The Doberman stopped dead in his yard patrol and regarded her, its gaze oozing anything but friendship. A low rumble seemed to rise from his belly. You're right, she intoned to Griffin. I can feel the resistance. The poor thing has been taught to be hostile and angry. No, you're doing great, Griffin hissed. When it was me, he tried to chew through the gate. She took another step forward. The boys did not accompany her. Luther's ears went up. The growl got louder. I can't look, moaned Ben. Savannah glared at him. You're ruining everything. A living creature has a sophisticated radar that can sense the emotions around him. Your negativity is spooking him. Godzilla couldn't spook that dog, Ben mumbled, backing away. Savannah unzipped a small duffel bag and produced a hard rubber toy in the form of a pink poodle with voluminous fur and a pom-pom tail. Griffin frowned at it. What's that supposed to be? His long-lost brother? Part of the cruelty of a guard dog's training is the way his world becomes all confrontation and conflict, Savannah explained. We have to bring out the playful side of his personality, which has been suppressed for so long. The imagination, the whimsy, the fun. She turned to the Doberman, smiling encouragingly. Here, Luther, I've brought something for you. She gently lobbed the poodle over the fence. It never reached the ground. With a blood-curdling roar, 
Luther leapt into the air and intercepted the gift with snapping, tearing jaws. The poodle was dismantled in a matter of seconds, and there stood the Doberman at the center of a scattering of pink rubber shreds. The scene looked like someone had fed a box of erasers through a giant engine. Wow, Griffin managed in awe. Savannah nodded her agreement. What a magnificent animal. Magnificent was not the word Griffin and Ben would have chosen. While Savannah made nightly visits to the store in an attempt to reach Luther's inner puppy, Griffin and Ben turned their attention to Swindle's burglar alarm. For three straight days, they spent the after-school hours in the Slovak's den, squinting at the plasma TV. Their noses were pressed to the screen as they painstakingly followed the path of a huge finger. I see blue spots in front of my eyes, Ben complained. You're lucky, Griffin told him. I can barely see it all. Come on, we've almost got it. It had been Griffin's idea to secretly videotape Tom Dufferin punching in the alarm code. Then they could work out the numbers from the movement of the assistant manager's hand. Over the past 72 hours, the boys had memorized his every hagnail and skin wrinkle, but the four-digit sequence continued to elude them. Griffin backed up the tape and ran it again. I think the first and last numbers might be one. See? The finger's at the top left, and the third is probably zero. It's at the very bottom of the pad. That leaves just the second number. It's in line with the one, only lower down, Ben observed. What's under one on a keypad? Four or seven. So it's either one, four, zero, one, or one, seven, zero, one. If we guess wrong, the alarm will bring every cop in town down on our heads, Ben said nervously. With a sigh, Griffin paused the tape. So how's Savannah coming along with Luther? Supervising the evening sessions at the fence had become Ben's job while Griffin crafted the rest of the plan. Terrible, Ben reported. At this rate, we won't have to worry about the alarm. We're both going to be torn to pieces before we get to the door. No better than last time? The barking isn't quite as loud, Ben offered, but that's only because she's feeding it peanut butter treats, and I think its mouth is glued shut. If the gate wasn't there, it would spit out the treats and eat Savannah. She says she can do it, Griffin insisted. That dog just has to let down its guard and trust her. I feel kind of lousy tricking her into this, Ben admitted. She probably has better ways to spend her nights than kneeling at a fence trying to sweet-talk a ferocious beast. We'll give her a share of the money from the Babe Ruth card when we get it, Griffin promised. You sure you boys can see from there, came a voice? Startled, Ben reached for the remote, but it was too late. His father was already in the living room. Mr. Slovak frowned. What's this, some kind of homemade reality TV? Griffin spoke up. It's a project for school. You have to guess the code. He hit the play button on the VCR. We've got it narrowed down to 1401 or 1701. School sure has changed since the days of the three R's, commented Ben's father. I don't have a clue, unless 
An odd expression appeared on his face. Is there a chance your teacher might be a Star Trek fan? Griffin perked up. Why? People choose combinations that will be easy for them to remember. On classic Trek from the 1960s, the serial number of the USS Enterprise was NCC-1701. He looked embarrassed. I know, I'm an old nerd. Griffin thought back to the security cases of figurines, models, and toys at Palomino's Emporium. There had been merchandise from dozens of TV shows, movies, and fads of every variety but 60s Star Trek seemed to be a favorite. Don't worry, Mr. Slovak, Griffin said, unable to keep the triumph out of his voice. I think the guy we're dealing with might be an old nerd too. Page 74, Chapter 9. For Griffin, watching a plan coming together was like completing a jigsaw puzzle. It started as a flimsy frame on the outer edges, then slowly the pieces filled in until the final image began to appear. With the baseball card heist, however, the finished picture was marred by a gaping black hole named Luther. It was Savannah's fourth meeting with the Doberman, and the girl was still baffled. I don't understand it, she confessed, leaning against the fence outside Palomino's Emporium. I fed him, soothed him, talked to him, reasoned with him. I watched the horse whisperer twice last night, hoping for inspiration. Maybe you should watch Dog Whisperer, Ben suggested glumly. I've already tivoed the entire season, she replied earnestly. Nothing helps. I never thought I could write off an innocent animal, but I have to admit it. This dog is beyond my reach. Griffin was stricken. You're giving up? No, you can't. She shrugged helplessly. Believe me, it doesn't make me happy. But what choice do I have? She indicated Luther on the other side of the fence. Look at his eyes. There's no let up in the anger. Not even a curiosity about me. This is my fourth night here, but to him, I'm just an intruder. Griffin was devastated. You can't quit now, he moaned. Please, please give it one more shot. Savannah's look of disappointment morphed into deep suspicion. Wait a minute. I know you guys. You're not getting this worked up over a dog. What's this really about? Griffin hesitated. The more people who were in on a conspiracy, the greater the chance that one of them would let something slip. But he had no choice. Without a dog whisperer to neutralize Luther, any plan would be doomed. There was no way to sugarcoat it, so he told her straight out. We need you to calm down the dog so we can break into the store and steal a baseball card. Savannah's jaw dropped open in shock, so Griffin quickly stammered, It's not as bad as it sounds. We'll give you a cut of the money. Her face burned bright red with fury. I can't believe you just said that. You want me to help you pull off a robbery? You're either crazy or you think I'm crazy. I'm telling my mother. I'm telling Mr. Palomino. I'm telling the police. As her voice rose, she gestured wildly, and a couple of fingers penetrated the chain-link fence. Like a shark smelling blood in the water, Luther snapped at her hand and would have taken off both digits if Ben hadn't pulled her back from the gate. 
Her rage doubled. Savannah wheeled on the doberman. You miserable, mangy waste of dog food. How dare you do that to me? I've shown you nothing but kindness, and this is how you behave? You don't deserve to be an animal. Rabies would be too good for you. You should be put in a rocket ship and blasted to Alpha Centauri, you evil, soulless, ill-tempered, psychopathic canine. Griffin and Ben were frozen in shock at the sudden change in their classmate. Never had they heard such a tirade, and certainly not from soft-spoken, level-headed Savannah Drysdale. But the boy's reaction was mild compared to the effect of the outburst on Luther. The lunging bees tumbled off the fence as if it had suddenly become boneless. It dropped to its belly and began groveling toward Savannah, wagging its tail and whimpering, gazing up at her with soulful, pleading eyes. Savannah, breathed Ben, look. I'm never going to forgive you guys for this, she hissed. Do you think I wanted to take a proud, glorious animal and break his spirit? It's okay, Griffin insisted. This is exactly what we were hoping for. Now you see where crime gets you, she seethes. Not only are both of you going to jail, but you forced me to go against everything I've ever believed in. I've destroyed this beautiful dog. This beautiful dog almost ate two of your fingers, Ben reminded her. Savannah, listen, Griffin said. We're not criminals. That card is rightly ours. I don't care, Savannah interrupted hotly. I'm leaving. She reached through the fence and stroked the dark fur behind Luther's neck. I'm sorry, boy. I didn't mean to do it. The doberman rolled over, presenting its belly to be tickled. Griffin was desperate. Fine, you can leave. You can even hate our guts. But please don't tell anybody what we're planning. No fear of that. Savannah was clearly both angry and hurt. As far as I'm concerned, you two nutjobs don't even exist anymore. If you want my opinion, you should both seek mental help. She kissed Luther through the fence, promised, I'll come visit you, sweetie, and stormed off into the night. Griffin watched her walk away. Well, he said, that could have been a lot worse. Ben gawked at him. I hope you're kidding. Think about it. She took care of the dog and promised not to rat us out. What more could we ask for? Luther tossed him a baleful look and trotted off into the shadows near the store. Ben was unconvinced. I don't know, Griffin. He doesn't look so taken care of to me. What if the dog whispering only works for Savannah? Griffin shrugged. You saw how to handle him. If he gets uppity, you just have to yell and scream and threaten to send him to Alpha Centauri. I've got that special feeling in my gut, and it says the time to act is now. Ben frowned. Griffin's gut was as reliable as Old Faithful when it came to choosing the right time to put a plan into action. Only... We're not ready yet, he protested. The plan isn't even finished. We still don't have a way to get past the deadbolts and into the store. Oh, yes, we do. The man with the plan could not suppress a smile. Remember that fifth grade project on the Trojan War? Page 81, Chapter 10. On October 10th at exactly 5.30 p.m., S. Wendell Palomino left his store and drove off in his Honda Element. 
He never noticed two furtive eyes peering out of a narrow alleyway at the end of the block. A moment later, Griffin teetered onto the sidewalk, struggling with a heavily laden hand truck. Balanced on the cargo ledge was a large crate that might have held a 33-inch TV. It did not hold a 33-inch TV. There was a grunt of pain as the hand truck bounced over a spot of broken pavement, and a voice from inside the box hissed, Watch it! Griffin said nothing. In the Trojan War, talking to the warriors hidden inside the wooden horse was a definite no-no. Twisting his neck to see over his shoulder, he backed down the street and peeked in the open gate in front of Palomino's Emporium. Perfect. No customers. Tom Dufferin was alone, tidying up the sales counter. Griffin frowned. The assistant manager had a clear view of the door. Come on, he thought. Move. A minute passed. Then, two. Sweat formed on Griffin's brow. How long could he stand here before someone noticed a thousand-pound crate in the care of an 11-year-old delivery man? At last, Dufferin picked up an armload of comic and headed to a display case at the back of the shop. Now! Griffin nearly dislocated both shoulders, tipping the load so he could roll it again. Ears roaring, he hauled the shipment in through the gate and set it down at the entrance. Uh-oh. The hand truck was stuck under the weight of the container. He couldn't budge it. What's going on? came an urgent whisper from the box. What's all that shaking? Shh! Griffin hissed. Inside the store, Dufferin had finished shelving the comics. In another few seconds, he'd be back at the front. Griffin marshaled his strength and gave a mammoth yank. With a screech, the cargo ledge pulled free. One of the metal handles whacked him in the mouth, and he staggered backward, tasting blood. Reeling, he scrambled out through the gate. It had been close, but he'd made the drop-off. The operation had begun. Tom Dufferin frowned at the bulky crate that had suddenly appeared at the door. He hadn't heard the delivery truck. It must have come in the last few minutes when he'd been in the back. He examined the brown paper that covered the wooden frame. It bore the address of the shop and the message. Attention, S. Wendell Palomino. Personal and confidential. To be opened by addressee only. With a shrug, Tom dragged the heavy container inside. Idly, he wondered what was so special that Palomino himself had to open it. Printed matter, probably, judging by the weight. Somebody's lifelong collection of comic books or magazines. He set the store's alarm, stepped out, and locked the door behind him. Whatever it was, the boss would deal with it when he arrived the next morning. On the other side of the glass, the paper moved ever so slightly. The rustle of nervous breath through air holes. There were times that Ben Slovak wished he had an ordinary best friend instead of the man with the plan. An ordinary best friend never would have convinced him to shut himself in a TV crate to get inside Palomino's Emporium. That was definite. As Trojan horses went, the crate was a cramped affair. Ben was the smallest kid in sixth grade. Still, he had to lie on his side with his knees pulled into his chest to fit into the small space. No pain, no gain, he reminded himself. 
This is for a million bucks. For some reason, the money didn't seem quite real to him. Helping the Bings, saving them from having to sell their house, that was real. He'd do anything not to lose Griffin. But a million dollars for a baseball card? Science fiction. Yet the weight of all that cash closed in on him as relentlessly as the frame of the crate. Stealing something worth a million was the same as stealing the million itself, wasn't it? On top of everything else, that made him uneasy about this caper. He couldn't escape the feeling that they might be committing a very serious crime. He peered through the gloom at his watch, 6.03. Sundown was supposed to come at 6.57. After that, the plan added 30 minutes more to let it get dark. By that time, it would be impossible to read the dial. Count, Griffin had instructed. Easy for him to say. 87 minutes equaled 5,220 seconds and, hey, now it was 6.05. The first 120 seconds were already over. He could start at 121, 122, 123. Just before 200, he was aware of the first yawn. Stop it, he commanded himself. Nobody falls asleep in the middle of a heist. Yet as he counted doggedly on, he could feel his eyelids getting heavier, the way they always did. No, not here, not now. He had barely reached 500. 529, his voice filled the empty store. 530. This was crazy. Fear alone should be keeping him awake. Did Achilles get caught napping inside the Trojan horse? 801, 802. He actually counted 803, but he was no longer awake to hear it. Page 88, Chapter 11. Here, Luther, where are you, boy? Griffin squinted through the gate into the darkness of the yard. The Doberman was nowhere to be seen. Griffin frowned. Not that he had any great love for the dog, but it was always unnerving when real life didn't match what you planned for. What if Luther had been left overnight in the store? If Ben opened the crate to find that ravening beast staring at him, he'd have a heart attack. Anxiously, Griffin began to climb the fence. It was tougher than he expected because of the acetylene tank of his father's blowtorch, which was strapped to his back. He clambered down the opposite side and shined a flashlight through the display window. No sign of Ben or the dog. Griffin's eyes fell on the crate, which sat just inside the door. The wrapping paper was undisturbed. He checked his watch. It was 7.45. Why was Ben still in the box? He rapped on the glass. Ben, he stage whispered into the crack of the door. He knocked harder. What are you doing, man? It's time. He experienced a moment of irrational terror. Had they forgotten the air holes? And then the scissors broke through the brown paper. Griffin watched breathlessly as the blade sawed laboriously around the square frame and disappeared again. A moment later, the lid was pushed open and Ben's head popped into view. Griffin took in the bleary blinking eyes. He fell asleep? Through his disbelief, Griffin couldn't suppress a hint of admiration. It was hard to imagine anyone being able to relax at a time like this. Ben was one in a million. 
A beeping sound brought Griffin back to urgent focus. The alarm! The intruder had triggered the motion sensor. Ben scrambled to the keypad. He had 30 seconds, no more. Griffin tried to fight off his uncertainty as his friend punched in 1701. If they were wrong about the code, the siren was going to bust every eardrum between here and New York City. There was a triple chime and the beeping stopped. The alarm was off. Ben unlocked the door and let Griffin inside. Sorry, I'm late, he said sheepishly. Any problems with the dog? Griffin shone his flashlight up and down the aisles. The dog's a no-show. Must be flea bath night. Ben looked around restively. I hate this place. It's like the wiring of those cases in going to come alive and strangle us. Griffin patted the blowtorch. Forget the cases. All I want is the safe. They followed the beam to the original scene of the crime, Swindle's sales desk. Griffin felt no guilt, only the exhilaration of a perfectly executed plan. They had done it. They were inside. No dog, fence, deadbolt, or burglar alarm could stop them now. He moved behind the counter and froze. The lockbox was not there. Where's the safe, he blurted. Ben appeared at his side. Behind the cash register, his mouth fell open. It was right here, attached to the floor. Griffin got down on his knees and focused the flashlight on the weathered hardwood. Four bolt holes marked the spot where the lockbox had once been. Search the store, Griffin rasped. They combed the aisles, the stock area, even the bathroom. The safe was nowhere to be found. Griffin looked stunned. I considered every possible move and counter move except one. Ben nodded miserably. A safe that can be bolted can also be unbolted and taken someplace else. Swindle had turned out to be a step ahead of them. A perfect plan, executed perfectly, and it's all for nothing. Maybe not, Ben said hopefully. I mean, the card's not here, but we're standing in the middle of Swindle's store. So instead, why don't we just take a bunch of other stuff that adds up to the same money? Griffin swelled like a blowfish. I am not a thief. I came here to find what's rightfully mine and take it back. I don't want anything that doesn't belong to me. But you'll never track down that card now, Ben reasoned. Who knows where Sindel could have hidden it? It could be in a safe deposit box in a bank vault. Griffin could offer only a helpless shrug. There was no quit in him, no surrender. But without the slightest clue where the Bambino might now be, no amount of planning or creative thinking or even genius was going to make a particle of difference. The man with the plan had run out of ideas. Page 94, Chapter 12 Misery. There was no other word for it. Watching Mrs. Brompton march an endless parade of house hunters through the Bing home was more than Ben could bear. He regarded each potential buyer with suspicion and outright hostility. Could these nice people be the enemy? The ones who would force Griffin's family to move? Who would split up the greatest pair of friends Cedarville had ever seen? 
as awful as it was for Ben, it had to be even worse for Griffin. It was his life that was being turned upside down, and not just by real estate agents. His entire personality had changed. The fire was gone, along with the razor-sharp sense of purpose that had always guided him. How many times had Ben prayed for a break from Griffin's never-ending schemes? Now he would have given his right arm to hear his friend burst out with, All right, here's the plan. To do something, anything, whatever it was, it had to be better than treading water, waiting for the inevitable, an offer on the house, a deal, packing, moving, the end of Griffin and Ben. At least it wasn't boring. The Bings were looking for reasons to be out of their home while it was being shown, so they were dragging Griffin and Ben with him to every mall, park, carnival, street fair, and free concert. On the surface, he was having fun. Yet deep down, it was like trying to enjoy great food while suffering from a gut blaster stomach ache. It was hard to be entertained today when tomorrow seemed very little like entertainment. And anyway, all he could think about was yesterday. The unsuccessful heist haunted the boys. The cleanup operation replayed itself in an endless loop in Ben's head. Ditching the empty TV crate, locking and re-alarming the store, even wiping the fingerprints from the keypad and doorknobs had been a half-hearted effort. Who would call the police to investigate the disappearance of absolutely nothing? At the most, Tom Dufferin might wonder about the delivery that had mysteriously disappeared. More likely, he would assume that his boss had dealt with it. In a way, the operation had been the perfect crime, in and out without a trace. How could such a glorious success have been such a dismal failure? They hashed and rehashed the details until their throats were dry. Only the roles were reversed. Ben was the one prodding, what now, what next? You can't heist something if you don't know where it is, Griffin said sadly. And it made total sense in every way but one. Griffin Bing did not admit defeat. It was simply not in his DNA. How had he suddenly become the man without the plan? They were riding home from yet another concert in the Bing's van when a barking sounded. Not the playful yelp of a house pet, but a full-throated braying. Goes to show how I've got swindle on the brain, Griffin mumbled unhappily. For a minute there, I could have sworn I heard Luther. Ben peered out the rear window. A large black dog was chasing them. I don't think there's even a Doberman. As they left their pursuer yowling stubbornly in the road, a thoughtful expression appeared on Ben's face. Wait a minute. It wasn't Luther. But it could have been. Griffin regarded him oddly. It could have been my grandmother, too. It wasn't. What are you talking about? Don't you get it? The real Luther has to be somewhere. He wasn't at the store on heist night. Where was he? Griffin gave a listless shrug. At home, I guess. Swindle probably gave him a few days off threatening people at Palomino's Emporium. It's no big deal. The card isn't even there anymore. Think, Ben ordered. What if Luther's absence and the card's absence are connected? Don't talk in riddles, man. Luther's a guard dog, Ben reasoned. 
When the Bambino was at the store, so was Luther. But if Swindle brought Luther home, light dawned on Griffin. The card is at Swindle's house. When they reached the Bings, Griffin and Ben made a beeline for the phone book. Please let the guy live in town. Griffin threw the directory open to the peas. One specifically, Palomino, S.W. There was the address, 531 Park Avenue Extension. That's not too far from the store, Ben exclaimed breathlessly. We did it, Griffin. We figured out where the card is. Griffin nodded, his cheeks flushed with purpose. Now all we need, Ben finished his sentence, is a plan. Not just any plan. This time, we need the ultimate plan. Page 100, Chapter 13. Swindle's House, 531 Park Avenue Extension. 1. Two-story home, steep-pitched roof. 2. Chain-link fence, even higher than at store. Why me? 3. No neighbor in back, town water, tower. 4. Private property, signs, 2. 5. No trespassing, signs, 3. 6. Keep out, signs, 4. 7. Beware of dog, signs, 6. Swindle sure loves signs, Ben observed nervously. He loves chasing people away, Griffin amended. He frowned at a sticker on one of the door sidelights. These premises, protected by an Ultratech Sentry Max, security system with wireless radio transmitter for instant police alerts. Great, he muttered, another alarm. And this one looks like something out of a James Bond movie, Ben added. His eyes fell on a dog dish on the stoop and a leash handle wrapped around the wrought iron railing. Heart sinking, he tracked the leather leash through the bushes and around the side of the house. The taut line went suddenly slack. Uh-oh. Ben was already in motion before they heard the first bark. He grabbed a bewildered griffin and began dragging him across the lawn. Luther exploded from behind the house in a pose that had become all too familiar, a ravenous predator in pursuit of prey. The road, Griffin rasped. The two flung themselves over the curb a split second before Luther ran out of leash and was yanked back by his collar. A motorcycle swerved to avoid the boys as they pounded across the street. The Doberman twisted and writhed, howling its outrage. I guess we'd better tell Savannah that her dog whispering is only temporary, Ben panted. A slow chuckle mingled with Luther's angry braying. Griffin turned to notice an elderly neighbor in a rocking chair on the porch of number 530. The man was peering at them over his reading glasses with great interest. Haven't seen you two around before. New in town? Griffin hesitated. It would be risky to say yes. Just because he didn't recognize the old guy didn't mean he might not be a friend of a friend of Griffin's family. Cedarville was, after all, a fairly small community. We're experimenting with some new ways home from school, he replied. Bully problems. The man's face darkened. Kids today. You wouldn't believe the things I see just sitting in this very chair. Griffin swallowed hard. 
The chair was perfectly positioned to watch the neighborhood in both directions. The Palomino front door was dead ahead across the street. Spend a lot of time out here, he asked faintly. Every waking minute, the man said cheerfully. I worked 43 years down in the coal mines. In my book, a second out of the fresh air is a second wasted. Even in bad weather, Ben ventured. I dress for it. Rain or shine, hot or cold. Eli Mulrooney is right here. Except at mealtimes, Griffin prompted. That's what a microwave is for, Mr. Mulrooney said agreeably. So I don't have to waste time cooking. Got no TV and no computer. Plenty of top-notch entertainment right out here. Like watching you two hot-footing it across the road with Luther on your tail. He treated himself to a good laugh. Think you were better off with the bullies. At least they don't bite. Griffin and Ben tried to laugh with him. What kind of people have a dog like that? Griffin complained. Doesn't it, you know, attack the mailman or bite their kids? Ha! If there's anyone nastier than that dog, it's the fine fellow who owns it. He lives solo. Who'd bunk with a creep like that? But Luther's not around much. Palomine usually has the critter on guard duty at his store. Wonder why the monster's here all of a sudden. Probably ate a few customers in the shop. Griffin felt some small measure of satisfaction. Eli Mulrooney may have been the unofficial CIA of Park Avenue Extension, but the old man still didn't know the real reason Swindle had moved Luther from store to home. Griffin was sure of it. The safe was there with the card inside it. He grimaced. Bad enough, Swindle was a security freak with an attack dog and an alarm system that had everything short of laser cannons. How were they supposed to pull off a heist under the nose of a full-time neighborhood spy? www.ultratech.usa Military Caliber Security for Your Home Griffin leaned back from the computer screen, whistling nervously through his teeth. How's bad, asked Ben. They were in the school library, researching S. Wendell Palomino's security system, hoping to find a way to beat it. You know what the Ultratech company is, Griffin groaned? They take the alarms the Navy used to put in dry dock submarines and install them in people's houses. Leave it to swindle. Ben peered over his shoulder at the screen. It says their sirens are 175 decibels louder than revving jet engines. That means if we set it off, half the town will come running, including the police and my mother. Doesn't matter, Griffin told him. We're not going to set it off. I wonder if his coat is the same as the one at the store. That wouldn't help us, Ben pointed out. Read this part, the e-alert feature. Every time the alarm is deactivated, the system automatically sends a message to your cell phone. So if we turn off his alarm, Swindle will be the first to know. And on top of it all, we've got Eli Mulrooney, who came up out of the coal mines just to make our lives complicated, said Griffin. He spends 25 hours a day staring at the very house we have to break into. He doesn't seem to like Swindle any more than we do, Ben mused. Maybe we should just explain what we're doing. Griffin was horrified. Are you crazy? I want your promise right now that you won't tell anybody, and I mean nobody. 
We told Savannah, Ben reminded him, and we'll still need her to get us past Luther. Don't ask how that's going to happen. She hates our guts. Griffin nodded slowly. We could do with some help, and not just for the dog. But we can't know exactly who to recruit until we have a plan. And even having a plan seems pretty far away at this point. It better not be too far away. The auction is in eight days. We'll make it work, Griffin promised grimly. It's more complicated than the store, but you tackle every problem one at a time. The neighbor, the dog, the alarm, the break-in, the safe. The what? Mr. Martinez appeared from behind a shelving cart. The alarm, the break-in, the safe. Griffin, Ben, if I didn't know better, I'd swear you're planning a burglary. Griffin was appalled. On top of everything else they were facing, how could they be so careless as to spill the beans in front of the teacher? He looked at Ben and instantly knew there was going to be no assistance from that quarter. His best friend was paralyzed. You're right, Mr. Martinez, Griffin managed finally. We are planning a burglary. At least Ben is. Ben cast him a look of pure torment. Griffin forged on. For creative writing, Ben got this great idea to write about a big robbery. And in order to write it, you have to plan it like it's real. Mr. Martinez broke into a delighted smile. I think that's fantastic. What's being stolen, Ben? Uh, a diamond necklace? Ben croaked. That explains the safe, said the teacher. How about the house you have to break into? I haven't really figured it out yet, Ben offered faintly. That's part of the writer's craft, the teacher enthused. You design the house to fit what you want to happen in the story. I have an idea. Go to the town hall. The building department has architectural drawings for every house in Cedarville. That should help your imagination take off. It might not have helped Ben, but it did wonders for Griffin. If the building department had a floor plan for every house in town, that meant there would be one on file for 531 Park Avenue Extension. And seeing that layout might show them the way in. Page 110, Chapter 14. Mrs. Annabel Abernathy, the building department clerk at the Cedarville Town Hall, loved her files and treated them as if they were her children. So when two 11-year-olds asked to see the original blueprints to 531 Park Avenue Extension, she was reluctant to hand them over. What do you want it for? She asked dubiously. It's a project for school, Griffin replied, pleased that it was only half a lie, thanks to Mr. Martinez. Town history, that kind of thing. Our job is to get a floor plan of a house built in the 20s or 30s. Well, all right, she said grudgingly, but you have to go and wash your hands. Man, I am insulted, Ben complained as the two stood in the men's room scrubbing. Does she think we crawled here through the sewers? It's a skate park thing all over again, Griffin muttered. They treat kids like garbage in this place. If we can manage to photocopy those plans without drooling on them, she'll consider it a miracle. Just keep you cool. The last thing we need is for her to start asking too many questions. Back at the desk, there was good news and bad news. I couldn't find 531 Park Avenue Extension, Mrs. Abernathy explained, so I brought you the blueprints for, 
1414 Lakewood Road. She held up a cautionary finger when both boys opened their mouths to protest. Hear me out. You're studying town history, and this is a part of it. Between 1925 and 1927, a builder named Gunhold put up six homes in Cedarville, all exactly alike. One was 523 Park Extension. Another is 1414 Lakewood. So this is the blueprint for the house you're asking about, since the plans are exactly the same. Under Mrs. Abernathy's watchful eye, Griffin and Ben photocopied the drawings and left the town hall. Seconds later, the papers were spread out on a park bench as the boys tried to make sense of them. Who can read these things? Griffin wondered aloud. Where's the back door? Maybe we could get in that way where Mr. Mulrooney couldn't see us. Ben squinted at the main floor layout. I think it's a side door. There's nothing in the back. It's a solid line. Anyway, all the doors and windows will be covered by the alarm. Griffin stared at the plans until he felt his eyes crossing. If I ever say I want to become an architect, hit me with a shovel. I can't get a sense of the house from this. We're going to have to see the real thing. Oh, sure, Ben said sarcastically. Swindle's going to invite us in for the grand tour. Probably not, Griffin agreed. But the people at 1414 Lakewood might. Why would they? Griffin grinned. Let's go over to Burger King and pick up some ketchup packets. I'll explain on the way. When the lady of the house opened the door of 1414 Lakewood Road, the sight that met her eyes told a chilling story. Two boys stood on her front porch, the smaller of them dripping blood from a badly scraped arm. As usual, Griffin did the talking. My friend fell off his bike. Can we please come in and use the phone to call his mother? Of course, she explained. But first, we need to wash that arm so it doesn't get infected. Come with me. Thank you, whimpered Ben. He hoped she attributed the weakness in his voice to shock rather than fear their hostess might clue in that the blood on his arm was really meant to be dolloped on french fries. The woman hustled him up a flight of stairs and into a small white tile bathroom. Wash your arm with soap, she instructed, rummaging in a drawer for antiseptic and bandages. I'll wait down here, Griffin called from below. He was already busily scouting the rooms and hallways, looking for an entry point from the outside. He felt a shiver of excitement as he looked around. Yes, he knew this wasn't really Swindle's house, yet it was supposedly an exact replica. This was like being behind enemy lines. The heist was almost underway. He unfolded the blueprints of the first floor, matching up walls and doorways, front door, side door. Some of these windows would be big enough to crawl through. What about the alarm? Wait a minute, the basement. He found the entrance and flitted silently down the cellar steps. The windowless basement was entirely underground, with no access to the outside. Another dead end. In the second-story bathroom, Ben had finished washing the ketchup off his arm. It was a good thing he'd had that wipeout in front of the Bing's for sale sign, he reflected. The scrapes were legitimate, even if the blood wasn't. See, said the woman, spreading ointment on his skin. It's already starting to scab over. You're a fast healer. Thanks, he mumbled. Sorry to bother you. His mind was downstairs with Griffin. 
Had his friend made a breakthrough? Had he discovered a way into this house, Swindle's house, really, that wouldn't set off the alarm? Suddenly, the sun burst out from behind a cloud, and a beam of light shot straight from the heavens to illuminate the white gauze that wrapped Ben's elbow. Sunlight! But this bathroom had no windows! Bewildered, he looked straight up, and there it was! The room was taller than it was wide, with a cathedral ceiling that followed the slope of the roof outside. Dead center was a heavy glass skylight. That's nice, he croaked, pointing skyward. Is it a window, too? I mean, does it open? It did, she replied. We had a special pole to pop it up, but the pole broke years ago, and they don't make replacements anymore. She finished bandaging his arm. Now let's go down and phone your mom. You know what? I don't want to scare her. I'll just ride home. I'm feeling a lot better. And he was, but it had nothing to do with his arm. He had found a way in. Page 117, Chapter 15 Antonia Pitch Benson opened her locker and shrugged out of her backpack. She was in the process of stowing it on the shelf when the words jumped out at her. Top secret. At the base of the narrow space, sitting on her gym shoes, was a printed note on bright green paper, folded twice. She opened it up and began to read. You have been chosen for your special skills to do something that urgently needs to be done. To learn more, come to the ballroom at 3.30. Don't miss this. It will be worth your while. Dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign. What's that? She wheeled around to see Darren Vader craning his neck to read over her shoulders. Mind your own business, she barked angrily, snapping the note out of his view. She refolded the paper and pocketed it. Now, what could that be about? Someone had obviously slipped it through the vents in her locker door. But who? And why her? Her only talent was rock climbing, and there weren't any mountains or crags near Cedarville. The whole thing was probably just a joke. And if Darren was behind it, she would be expressing her displeasure with her fists. She slammed her locker shut. Whatever it was, she'd know at 3.30. Dad, this athlete's footage is driving me crazy. Isn't there anything we can do? Logan Kellerman had never been so well prepared for an audition. He had rehearsed his line so many times that he knew it inside out. He understood every subtle shade of it, especially his character's motivation. He was someone who didn't want to be itchy anymore and who knew his father loved him enough to buy an exciting new product to make him feel better. The role had become so much a part of him that sometimes he could actually feel the prickling irritation between his toes. There was no way the director of that commercial could overlook his performance. No way in the world. Dad, this athlete's foot itch... He was halfway through his speech again when he noticed the green piece of paper at the bottom of his locker. You have been chosen for your special skills. Special skills? Logan's heart beat faster. This could only be about some kind of acting job. The ballroom at 3.30? He could hardly wait. Melissa Dukarkis wasn't sure what to make of the folded green invitation. She had never been invited to anything before. Special skills? What could that mean? She was a C student who didn't know a lot of people and kept to herself. Maybe this was a mistake. 
the wrong locker, or maybe the wrong Melissa. There were several others in the school. That must be it. A mistake. She would go at 3.30 just to explain the mix-up. The green top-secret note crumbled in her pocket. Savannah Drysdale stormed past the gym. She'd been halfway home before she'd changed her mind about this meeting. Why lose sleep wondering what all the secrecy was about, as if she didn't already know? Griffin Bling and his sawed-off sidekick. The ballroom was actually a storage area by the gym. It was piled high with dead tennis balls, shattered ping-pong balls, ripped baseballs, cracked golf balls, squashed soccer balls, leaky footballs and basketballs, lopsided medicine balls, untethered tether balls, and balls from sports that no one ever played. Bocce balls, water polo balls, rugger balls, and even a few that no one could identify. Coach Nimitz could not bring himself to throw away a ball and truly believed that one day he would find the right pump or patch. Then all this equipment could be used to promote physical fitness for children. It was in this rubber and horse-hide graveyard that Savannah found the meeting already in progress. Along with Griffin and Ben, she was surprised to see Pitch, Logan, and Melissa lounging on the soft piles of Fizz Ed castoffs. You two, Savannah spat. I knew it. This is about your stupid baseball card, isn't it? You were right to be angry before, Griffin told her seriously. We should have been honest with you from the very beginning. We won't make that mistake again. Pitch was bewildered. What baseball card? Before we go any further, Griffin said solemnly, I need your word that what's said in this room stays in this room. In or out, you can't tell anybody about this. Ever. This is no kid's game. There's serious stuff on the line, serious money, but also serious trouble if anything goes wrong. If you don't think you can handle it, there's the door. Nobody moved, not even Savannah, who knew what was coming. Pitch spoke up. All right, Griffin, you've got our attention. What's this about? A Babe Ruth card from 1920, the kind collectors pay big bucks for, Griffin gave them the whole story, from the discovery in the old Rockford house to Swindle's deceitful flim-flam and the unsuccessful break-in at the store. So it's about the money, but not just the money, he concluded. Swindle saw a couple of kids, and he took advantage of us because he didn't think we could do anything about it. We're going to show him he was wrong. Logan cleared his throat. How much money are we talking about? Equal shares split six ways, Griffin replied. We can't know the total amount because it's being sold at an auction. But the rock bottom starting bid is $200,000. And Griffin told the TV news he thought it could go for over a million. A million dollars? Melissa performed the calculation at lightning speed in her head. That's 166666 each. I could buy a state-of-the-art computer and build a new wing on your house to keep it in, Ben added. I could afford acting lessons from Sanjay Jatwani, said Logan dreamily. I could take my family climbing at Yosemite, explained Pitch in awe. Savannah was not as easily impressed. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of money. I'd love to grow up knowing I've got enough in the bank to pay my way through veterinary school. Who wouldn't? but that kind of cash doesn't come easy. You're talking about a robbery, not a Sunday picnic. 
You're right, said Griffin. Still, if we all work together, we can pull it off. We break into Swindle's house through a skylight on the roof. Pitch, that's where you come in. Your job is to get us there. Like climbing on a building instead of a mountain, she mused. The, the house has an alarm system, but the motion sensors will be off. We know this because Swindle has a guard dog that sleeps in the house. The dog's no joke, but Savannah can handle him. Deep down, he's a real sweetheart, Savannah said fondly. Melissa shook her head, clearing the veil of hair away from her face. So my role is to get to the panel and disarm the alarm. Pitch regarded her in amazement. You can do that? Ben shook his head. Doesn't matter. That's the last thing we want to do. If anyone shuts down the system, Swindle gets notified by e-alert. Melissa frowned. So what do you need me for? You know more about computers than anybody else in this town, Griffin replied. Can you hack into Swindle's email? Probably, but what for? We need to find a time when he's going to be out of the house for a few hours. We can't have him busting in on us when we're stealing our card back. Logan was confused. Where do I fit into all this? I'm an actor, not a burglar. Swindle lives across the street from the great-granddaddy of all nosy neighbors, Griffin replied. His name is Eli Mulrooney, and he has the whole block under surveillance 24-7. His chair is pointed right at Swindle's front door. We need you to focus your acting skills on making friends with this guy so you can distract him during the operation, and you'll be a lookout at the same time. Griffin got up from the flattened exercise ball he'd been using as a beanbag chair. I know it sounds crazy, and I know it sounds dangerous, but if you break it down into everybody doing their job, you'll see that no single part is impossible. We just have to put it, all the pieces together in the right order. We can do this. Now, who's on board?